Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. My guest today is Becky Apanchin Neal. Becky is an associate professor in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Maryland and a university fellow at Resources for the Future. Becky's research lies at the intersection of ecology and economics, and she focuses on conservation, invasive species, and the topic we're going to talk with her about today, coastal adaptation to climate change. So specifically, I'm going to ask Becky about the problem of saltwater intrusion, which people sometimes refer to as the leading edge of sea level rise. Some of you who are regular listeners might remember we had what I thought was a great episode of Resources Radio back in May, where we talked to Skip Stiles of Wetlands Watch about sea level rise problems in Virginia. And I think that the saltwater intrusion problem actually got mentioned in that episode, but today we're going to dive into it a little bit more. Becky's going to tell us about some of the problems it creates and potential solutions to them, and she's going to tell us about some of her research on the issue. Stay with us. So hello, Becky. Welcome to Resources Radio. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thanks, Margaret. It's great to be here with you. I'm really excited to be here. So if you're a listener, you probably know we don't like to dive straight into the topic. We want to learn a little bit about you first. So can you share a little bit about your background and especially kind of how you came to do research at the intersection of ecology and economics and and maybe how that led you to this particular topic we're going to talk about today? Yeah, thanks. It's always fun to reflect on that. I took a bit of a winding path, I'd say, to where I am now because I always had a love and fascination of nature. You know, always spent my time outdoors collecting lizards and insects. And in fact, you can still find me out there a lot these days. But uh, I actually didn't discover economics until spring quarter my senior year in undergraduate. It was the last required class for graduation. And so I kind of took it a little bit kicking and screaming because I just sort of saw it as the source of environmental challenges. And But it was through that class that I really learned about economics as a framework for understanding decisions and also for helping shape solutions. So think about how we can do foreign policies and uh, incentives to achieve different uh, societal and environmental outcomes. And so super grateful that I ended up having to take that class at that time. And yeah, and since then, um, I've continued at that intersection of ecology and economics. So um, did my master's in biology and just continuously felt the need to be bringing in people into the the discussion, to the issues at hand. And so did my PhD. And most of the work that I do at this point is really at that intersection. I'm really lucky in that I get to do a lot of collaborative work. So I work a lot with different natural scientists and different social scientists and uh, also try to engage a lot of the policymakers and stakeholders in the research that I do. And the way I got into saltwater intrusion is actually uh, probably stemmed more from my uh, initially thinking about the ways in which sea level rise and climate change affect Uh, ecosystem services provided by coastal habitats, including wetlands. And then also that recognition that it's a lot of the rural landowners, the rural land users that are providing a lot of those, the land and resources for, you know, that contribute to those ecosystem services. And uh, yeah, and then I actually ended up uh, reaching out, uh, 
some other collaborators who are now long-term collaborators of mine reached out to actually brought me in. They'd already been doing work on uh, saltwater intrusion in these coastal areas and have been lucky to be working with them since then. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And we're going to talk about uh, some of that work you're doing with them. So maybe give our listeners a background just on what the saltwater intrusion problem is, a little bit of detail about it. What are the drivers of it and how big or widespread of a problem is it, Becky? Yeah. So at its simplest, saltwater intrusion is the incursion of saltwater into freshwater resources, such as into aquifers or rivers, soils, such that it ends up uh, contaminating those resources, those freshwater resources with salt. And so, you know, this is an issue because, you know, people, plants, animals, we depend upon freshwater for our survival. And so when these freshwater resources become contaminated with salt, it can affect a lot of, it affects our drinking water, it affects water for irrigation, it can cause die-offs of species in different ecosystems. You might have heard of ghost forests, for example, which are coastal forests that have been uh, affected by salinization, and so therefore you have these die-off of trees. And saltwater intrusion, it's, you know, it's a, in a sense, a natural process in that anywhere where you have that interface between saltwater and freshwater in these coastal regions, you're going to have the salinization of those freshwater resources in those locations. But the real challenge is that the changes in climate and land use and, and, and water use um, really has shifted and increased it, the sort of extent and frequency and intensity of saltwater intrusion and how far that salinization is reaching inland. And so when you have, um, for example, with sea level rise, you know, you're raising the elevation of these coastal seawaters, which can then uh, end up reaching further inland. You can think about that in terms of with storm surge, you're going to have uh, salty waters uh, going further in that way. But you also have increasing pressure below ground that can uh, lead to the intrusion of that salt water uh, further inland. But also you think about these, uh, a lot of the water management infrastructure that we have where you have uh, ditches and canals. And for example, in areas where perhaps historically we might have been draining the land, trying to move that water off the land, as sea level rises, that's also conduits for that salt water to be moving further inland. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that part of it. Yeah, that's interesting. So Becky, you mentioned um, saltwater intrusion into freshwater resources. And I, as I understand it, there's a lot of problems that saltwater intrusion does cause for water supplies and water infrastructure. So uh, saltwater intrusion into drinking water aquifers is an example. Can you talk about these issues a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, this is happening increasingly often. There's a lot of issues with saltwater ending up affecting these freshwater resources, such as what some listeners might actually be familiar with is hearing recently about some of the concerns about saltwater intrusion into the Mississippi River. There's been a a salt wedge working its way up the Mississippi River because uh, under drought conditions, there's been less freshwater flowing into the river and hence allowing the ocean waters to work their way further up. And like many cases with saltwater intrusion, you end up with this actual interactions between uh, these climate conditions, in this case, drought, but also water use that perhaps is reducing the uh, flow of fresh water, as well as connectivity, how we've changed the landscape. In this case, for example, the dredging 
uh, of the bottom of the Mississippi to facilitate transport. You know, all of these things are ending up contributing to this issue. And there's concern that uh, some of the drinking water facilities are going to be affected if the saltwater wedge reaches its way up to the intake for these areas. And so there's different interventions that are going on now, for example, the Mississippi River. But you also have this in a lot of aquifers where particularly if you have uh, pumping or with increasing sea level rise, or if there's connectivity between the aquifers and the ocean, that you can end up with salinization of your coastal aquifers. And this is a real problem, particularly when those are being used for drinking, supporting often urban communities. Um, for example, we see that in Florida, um, where you're having uh, the aquifers being contaminated with salt water. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, let's, let's talk about agriculture a little bit. You mentioned the water issues, which I, I, I think is important and people understand, but a lot of your work has been focused on agriculture. So what problems does this saltwater intrusion issue create for agricultural lands? Yeah, um, so for agriculture in particular, you know, we're growing crops and growing plants. And um, so therefore, uh, most of the crops that we grow are actually very intolerant to salts. Um, you know, it's very, there, there are a handful of plants that are able to excrete salts and therefore persist in uh, saline conditions, but most crops cannot. And so what we see is a decline in crop productivity, decline in crop yields, and often even failure to germinate in uh, highly salinized areas. Yeah. So I think you, you focused a lot of your work on the eastern shore of Maryland, and it, just so people are familiar with, they might not be familiar with Maryland geography, that's the peninsula that lies between the Atlantic Ocean and the Chesapeake Bay, part of what's called the Delmarva Peninsula with Delaware, Virginia. So first, um, tell us why, you, why you're focused in that region and what makes that region in particular worth studying for this problem? Yeah, um, there's a couple of reasons. One is um, both agriculture is a really important uh, economic sector on the eastern shore. And so um, in, in that sense, understanding the stressors of which saltwater intrusion is one of the big stressors in these coastal areas um, is really important. And uh, the eastern shore is very low lying. So there's long stretches of the eastern shore that you can go pretty far inland and still be at very low elevation. And so when you have um, high tide events or large storms, um, that that saltwater can go, you can have overwash of saltwater. And you also have a lot of ditching of the eastern shore that, again, is allowing for that connectivity of that saltwater uh, further inland. And so it's both that it's a high risk area and uh, lots of agricultural values at risk, but also it's an area of extreme environmental importance. There's a lot of water quality issues and a lot of loss of coastal wetlands in that region. And so um, there's a lot of intersection between what we're thinking about is happening on these agricultural lands and uh, the different ecosystem service benefits provided in these regions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm very familiar with that region myself, having done some work over there. So your research in particular is filling a gap in the literature, I think. And, and when I say in the literature, I mean kind of climate impacts on ag. And one of your papers, you mentioned that there's very little known about agricultural responses to saltwater intrusion. 
Um, there is a pretty big literature on agricultural responses to heat and drought. I know that, but there's not much on this particular manifestation of climate change. So tell us a little bit about what you and your co-authors did to kind of fill this gap and, and just some what some of your findings are. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to start off by just highlighting that, you know, I'm part of a larger interdisciplinary team working on this. And so we've got a whole bunch of different work going on on the eastern shore, including planting different crops and trying to look at how yield is affected across salinity gradients. There's remote sensing going on, trying to map soil salinities and um you know, a lot of work into, for example, the biogeochemistry. But what we, the um, study that I've been leading has been looking at using remotely sensed uh, crop land cover data, um, the USDA uh, crop data layer, and using that to try to understand how agricultural land covers, so the land cover or land use or the crops on agricultural fields has changed over time in response to saltwater intrusion uh, in this eastern shore region. So we took the these crop characterizations and we're then linking them with different information about the fields, including the soil types that are present at those fields, as well as information about the elevation of those fields with respect to sea level. And in particular, it's how sea level varies over time. And so what we can then do is see how these land cover changes relate to uh, sea level and relate, which is our, in a sense, proxy for saltwater intrusion. And uh, we can then, using those statistical models that we develop, we can then also make predictions about how land cover may change in the future with uh, anticipated sea level rise. Mm -hmm. So tell us what you found when you we did that work. Yeah, so one of the... Uh, primary findings with respect to land that remained in agriculture within the, the study period, those areas that were uh, most affected by saltwater intrusion, or in other words, were the lowest elevation with respect to sea level, were much more likely to have transitioned out of corn rotations. So much of the eastern shore um, is cropped in these rotations of corn, soy, or corn, soy, and wheat. And uh, Corn in particular is particularly susceptible to salinization and also is a crop that requires a lot of inputs. And so what we ended up seeing was this shift from uh, these fields that were in rotation with corn to ones where corn was absent from those rotations. And this is aligns with what we'd expect based upon the susceptibility of these crops to salinization. Mm -hmm. And then did you do some predictions of how extensive that would be, less corn or whatever with sea level rise in the future or with the accelerated yeah, sea level? Yeah, yeah. So what we see is this shift from these rotations with corn to rotations that did not have corn in them, as expected, based upon the susceptibility of the, the corn to salinization. And in addition, we also see transitions out of agriculture. So we are seeing these lands shifting from agricultural uses to, for example, wetland vegetation. And so when we look at the predictions going forward, you see a very distinct uh, shift where there's a substantial amount of these very low-lying lands are moving out of corn and then also transitioning into wetland vegetation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
So wetlands have a lot of value, Becky, right? So, yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> so this yeah. is an interesting phenomenon. Can you just tell folks why wetlands are so valuable for one thing? And then this issue of some of the agricultural land kind of changing into wetland, a cropland changing to wetland. Um, yeah. You know, is, is that's in response to sea level rise. Like, what about that a little bit? Like, there's some interesting aspects to that to that. I mean, in a way, that's a good thing, but uh, also a challenge for farmers, I think. So, yeah, I mean, because, yeah, it's this really, yeah, challenging topic because, so wetlands, yeah, they're very important. They provide a lot of the ecosystem service values in terms of they support a large amount of biodiversity. They provide habitat for a lot of species. They provide a lot of recreational benefits, um, you know, both aesthetic values, but also in terms of bird watching and hunting, hunting being a really big uh pastime uh, in the on the eastern shore in particular they also do help filter nutrients which is really important for water quality issues in the chesapeake bay uh, carbon sequestration and also coastal protection you know a lot about this margaret you've done a lot of work on this um, just the ways in which it can help reduce coastal erosion and inland flooding particularly during storms and so these wetlands are a really important ecosystem in these coastal areas but we've also had historically a lot of loss of coastal wetlands due to a range of stressors from conversion to other land uses, but also from sea level rise. If uh, As wetlands become inundated by higher sea levels, if um, they can't kind of accrete vertically at a fast enough rate, and uh, then you know wetlands in particular locations will be lost. And so to maintain those coastal wetlands, they need to be able to migrate or disperse inland, so move inland as the sea level is rising. But if you face hard barriers such as roads or uh, development, for example, or very active management such as uh, agricultural cropping, you're, that's going to prevent that movement or that mi migration of wetlands inland. And so there's this um, the, this idea that you know, we are really kind of relying on some of these more natural land spaces or these less developed lands, such as agricultural lands, as potential pathways for wetland migration. And that at the same time, that as these agricultural lands are losing their productivity, losing kind of perhaps the profitability of cropping those lands, they, you know, farmers may abandon those lands, for example, or they may engage in uh, programs such as CREP or land, you know, putting their land in like a wetland, uh, the wetland reserve program or engaging in some of the NGO uh, conservation organizations as means to transition their land out of agriculture and potentially into wetlands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so that brings me to a financial question for farmers then. I mean, that what you just described might give them some financial benefits. I guess that's one aspect that's a good thing for them, but they are losing some valuable crop production. I mean, are people talking about this? Did you look, well, first question, I guess, is did you look at this kind of um, economic impact on the agricultural sector and sort of any calculations of how much profit they're losing? And then how much opportunity do we have to replace that with some other thing of value for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that, you know, farmers are bearing a lot of burden in these coastal areas. And, you know, a lot of these rural landowners, I mean, you think, you know, they're 
not the <laughs> the source of the rising seas, and yet they are at the front lines of a lot of those impacts. And so, and it can be really hard for farmers, many of whom have been farming for decades or even generations, that are seeing their lands lost to salinization and inundation, and you know, loss of uh, livelihoods and you know, as you said, the economic impacts in those areas. In a, another study with one of my colleagues, we quantified some of the economic impacts of losses in profits just in parts of fields that were affected by salinization as a sort of a snapshot in time. And across the Delmarvas, estimated about 40 to 70 million per year uh, in that study. Um, when you know, we're thinking about this uh, for, you know, what, how these losses play out in part are going to depend upon kind of what is that pathway? Is it, what are, how are farmers responding to that salinization? There fortunately are some programs to help offset some of those costs, such as, as I was mentioning, some of the different conservation easement programs have potential to provide at least some offset of that uh, income loss. I know that there's also some farmers that have looked into things like mitigation banks or um, other uh, more market-based um, forms. But in general, you know, th- these are losses that are being faced in these systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I can see that. Are there some adaptation solutions that can be taken to the in the agricultural sector? And if so, what are they? Yeah, I mean, so Kind of what I was noting before in the study is what we were really observing was these adaptation responses, one of being that you can change the types of crops that you're planting. So we did see, like, for example, a lot more sorghum being planted in some of these low-lying lands because that tends to be a crop that is much more tolerant to saline conditions and to inundation, for example. You also have, you know, putting in tide gates can help in some particular context where you might be able to at least delay the um, that inland flow of salty waters. So trying to change that connectivity is one option. Um, so, so, you know, there's ways in which you can kind of delay or prolong or kind of reduce the economic impacts for a while. But in many of these really low-lying areas, we're unfortunately facing very substantial sea level rise. You know, the, this region has a relative sea level rise rate of, you know, twice the global average. And so there's a lot of areas that are, you know, have already been lost or already been, you know, submerged, you know, no longer, <laughs> you know, no longer land. And there's a lot of places that are going to be lost in the, you know, coming decades, the coming century. And so a lot of this is like, how do we think about that transition, both in terms of how do we support the farmers and landowners through this transition, but then also just kind of thinking about what would be, how do these different potential pathways end up, you know, resulting in different outcomes in terms of societal or community impacts or ecosystem service values. And um, that that's one of the things that we're hoping to bring to this, you know, with some of the prediction modeling that we're also doing in terms of thinking about where salinization is going to happen is just having better ideas about the timeline and where where these things are going to happen, hopefully can help with some of the planning as we think through what these transitions might be. 
Right, right. So just having a sense sort of spatially and temporally what the extent of the problem is, is helpful for planning, I guess you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Becky, that's, it's really interesting. And we'll put some links to some of your work on our webpage when we get this podcast episode up. I'm glad you were able to come on and talk to us about it. You know that we close the podcast with a regular feature that we call Top of the Stack. And yes, we're going to ask you if you could recommend something for our listeners, a book, an article, a podcast, a movie, anything really. (laughs) What's on the top of your stack? I know. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually put out a book. Um, Two Degrees by Alan Gratz is a book I recently read with my 12 year old. I'm not sure how much young adult reading you get on this show, but I think you know a lot of people have a lot of people have kids, so I think it's nice. I really like this. This is a book about climate change, and it's so very appropriate for this episode. And it tells you know the uh, interwoven story of three characters facing in different regions of North America, each finding themselves in the midst of a different climate disaster and how they understand climate change and about communication of climate change and the really very real impacts. And it's a really good book. Like it's gripping. It's like a page turner, but also really thoughtful in terms of thinking about the social and uh, information dynamics. So highly recommended. Um, Okay. Yeah. 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 A lot of young adult books are good for adults. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. And I, it was great reading with my son and just a lot of the discussions that we had coming out of it are always fun. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for that. Um, well, it's been a pleasure having you on Resources Radio. I'm so glad we we're able to have you come on and talk about what we call the leading edge of sea level rise, saltwater intrusion. Um, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with our listeners. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Margaret. It's always a uh, privilege to get to interact with you and also really wonderful to be a guest here on Resources Radio. So thanks. Thanks. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.